Eagles Entertainment. With the 10th pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by Life Brand. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we've got a lot to get to. College football playoff, they're in the rearview mirror. We've got the New Year's Six games to break down as well. But first, we're going to get into scout stories where the Eagles director of college scouting, Alan Walking, is going to join the show to talk about what he values most at the center position. Talk through how you project those guys from college to the NFL. Really fun discussion with Alan at the top of this episode. After that, we're going to then transition to Saturday scouting where we're going to cover some underclassmen news, also the bowl game standouts with Ben Fennel and Dane Brugler. Before we transition to our on the clock segment, as Chris McPherson makes his return to the show to help us figure out who's the player that we missed out on most for bowl season for a variety of reasons here this winter. We're going to get into that in on the clock. After that, we've got our draft mailbag to close out the show. Two questions, one Eagles, one not, but it'll be a lot of fun uh, to wrap up the show there with our draft mailbag. As always, make sure you go on over to our Apple podcast page. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. If you've got a question or a mock draft you want us to break down, that is the place to leave it. Jump on over to our Apple podcast page and leave it in the comment box. We will get to it here in an upcoming show. That said, Excited to get into uh, Scout Stories this week with Alan Walking talking about the center position. Let's get that rolling. Pull up a seat. It's time for Scout Stories. Well, joining us this week here on Scout Stories to talk about the center position, one of the more important positions along the offensive front, is Alan Walking, the Eagles Director of College Scouting. Thanks so much for joining us here once again, Al. Thanks, Ryan. So let's talk through center, uh, a position that, I'm going to be honest, like to me, I think my opinion has kind of uh, has kind of warped a little bit here at this position because before it'd be like, oh, you know, you can wait till later. You can find a center, uh, maybe not, not as important as some of the other spots along the offensive line. But the more you watch film, the more you watch the game, the more I feel like, yeah, like you, you need to be able to find to be able to find that guy. So, so important for an offense. It's critical. You're, you're exactly right. You know, I, I think um, uh, you have to, invent, you know, I, I, there are good players at every level of the draft, but I think it's probably um, uh, false to think that you could just wait and uh, get guys like this after the draft. I mean, they, you, this is a very critical position. What makes it so hard to evaluate those guys going from, from uh, the college ranks to the NFL? Well, you know, for us, for the Eagles, you know, it's probably the fact that we have such a unique, unique player at the position. You know, Kelsey is such a rare player. Um, the things that he's able to do are extremely difficult. Uh, it's unlikely that we'll ever find someone who can do what Jason does. Um, so you're kind of translating what a new player, how he would operate in the system, knowing that much of what Kelsey does can only be done by Kelsey. So uh, I hope our fans appreciate what a special player and teammate Jason is. I mean, we're so lucky to have him. That's, you know, an all-time pick by Howie. Uh, but that that makes your job as an evaluator difficult because the guy that uh, plays it for us is just, uh, he's kind of a one-off. He's such a special guy. I feel like every year there's like an undersized center or a really high, highly athletic one. And people are like, oh yeah, he could be Jason Kelsey. And I'm like, yeah, he's, he's small, but he's not as athletic or he's as athletic, but he's not as strong. There's all these things where you're like, the guy's a unicorn and he's been one of the best to do it. You're hundred percent right. So every, yeah. Every year, the undersized safety is that guy or the fast guys, Deshaun Jackson or something. <laughs> yeah. you know, look, these guys are special players and they've been really good players on the league for a reason. They're unusual. Right. So uh, what is it in your mind then that separates the, the truly unique guys from what would be like a solid starter? Yeah. You know, I would say most of the guys at this position are highly intelligent. Mm. Uh, and on top of that, you have, um, and 
an assertive mindset. They're controllers. You know, um, it's the guy who gets into your car and changes the radio station, adjusts the temperature, changes the seat, <laughs> gives you directions to the destination, right? Like that's a general generalization, but you under, you understand what I'm saying. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it seems to me that a lot of the really good ones just have this innate desire to control situations and they're good at it. You know, people respond to the way that they, they do that. So uh, the good ones, I think just, have that, you know, if we're trying to find something that maybe isn't just always present on the tape, but something that a scout would look for, that's, that's something that's usually on my radar. You know, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast with Eric Wood. Uh, this was a few months ago now, uh, in the early part of the off season. And he was saying that, you know, the reason why I wanted to be a center was because yeah, like somebody else could make the calls and somebody else could read the defenses, but why allow somebody else to have that control? Like I want right. to be, if, it, if we're going to fail, I want that to be on me. And I'm like, yeah, like, all right, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it just speaks exactly what you just said that's right the guys that want that on them their shoulders you know they typically thrive at that position but you know really some of those interiors a lot of those guys have that dna uh, mm. along the offensive line what's the best piece of advice you've gotten when it comes to evaluating and projecting this position yeah i i don't know if i have a piece of advice I, i'd say you know jeff stoutland has really helped me develop through my career stout mm. is an awesome evaluator he's so engaged in the evaluation process uh, he really gets in there and engages with the scouts. Um, and not only is he a great teacher, he's a great listener too. You know, it's a two-way street. It's always an active learning environment when talking players with Stout. He brings a ton of knowledge and a ton of energy. Um, he's just really good. My last question I have for you, and I guess this is really along the entire offensive line, but when you have when you're looking at prospects that maybe, hey, he's a center only versus, hey, not only could he be center, but he could be a guard. He could you know, be a spot tackle at times, you know, whatever it is. Having that, how does that change the evaluation if a guy's a center only versus having that position flex? Yeah, there's probably, a, you know, there's a significant drop off in the grade scale. Like if you can play, if you're a one position player, you have to play at a quality starter level. Yeah. Um, if you can do multiple jobs, there's probably a little bit more margin for error because for us to get out of a, a game, like we might need to play, uh, you know, a, a player in multiple spots or, or swing a guy. So those guys that can do multiple things, bring more utility to the roster. Now, if you can get a, a quality starter, I mean, that guy's going to be, he, he's going to retain the value, uh, but you better be a starter. You know, if, if you can only play one job, that's yeah, no question. That's tough. And we always have those discussions in August when it comes to roster cuts down. We talked about that on the podcast uh, all the time, Alan, uh, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining us here on the journey to the draft podcast. To talk about the center position. Thanks friend. Well, good stuff there from Alan. As always, great to catch up with him. Uh, I thought it was interesting just talking about the center position, how you can't just wait uh, for those guys. Obviously, you can find them uh, later in the draft, but doesn't mean that you need to wait uh, because there are obviously some really good ones uh, that go off the board in the first few rounds. Uh, that's something I think we'll see here in this upcoming NFL draft. Obviously, some big names at the top of the board at the center spot. Um, and I also love just talking with uh, with Alan about Jason Kelsey and how he's just so rare, so unique, uh, and how that can be so difficult to be able to grade him against other centers because you've got one of the more unique players at the position. And look, that, that can be difficult. It's both a blessing and a curse, right? Because you see what greatness looks like every week when Jason Kelsey is out there, but he is not an easy player to make an apples to apples comparison with. So it's always a, an interesting conversation when you talk with scouts about uh, evaluating players against ones that are already in their own building. And Jason, obviously a really interesting one uh, with that. I love the the anecdotes there about Jeff Stoutland as well and how he's such a big part of the evaluation process 
process. And I think that's something that we try and talk about here on the show whenever we can is that assistant coaches, obviously they're a big part of this too, just at a certain time of year, right around when we get to uh, the senior bowl and the combine, that's when the assistant coaches, uh, really the coaching staff started to become more involved. Some coaches are more involved in that process than others. And it was, I thought Alan did a great job of giving us a peek behind the curtain at the impact Jeff Statlin has at that part of the process. And then the versatility thing. I mean, we hit on that almost on a weekly basis here on the show. So great stuff there from Alan Walkie. Hope you guys have enjoyed these discussions on a weekly basis here with our scout story segment. That said, uh, let's transition to our next part of the show. It's time now to talk through some bowl games with Saturday scouting. It's time for Saturday scouting. All right, time to turn our attention to the news here in Saturday Scouting as I welcome in Ben Fennell and Dane Brugler. Guys, uh, before we get into our reactions from uh, the college football playoff and from the New Year's Six Bowl games, uh, let's look first at some underclassmen news and a bunch of big names over the last week have declared for the NFL draft, especially on the offensive side of the football. That's kind of where I wanted to focus my attention here today. And obviously the big name at quarterback, North Carolina's Sam Howell at one point uh, in that discussion as a potential top five pick, top 10 pick. I'm assuming that a senior bowl invite is coming soon here. Dane, I'll start with you here. Uh, if that's the case with Sam Howell, how does he factor into this quarterback picture? Yeah, see, he already has the invite. He might have, by the time people are listening to this, he might have already accepted. Um, uh, and, and so I, I think it's going to be a great opportunity for him uh, to go to Mobile. And because, you know, the, the season that he had this year just it didn't live up to the hype for a lot of different reasons. You know, the identity of the UNC offense is just a little bit different without those two running backs, without his top two receivers from last year. Uh, he, he, you know, they use his legs so much more. He, he, if you take away the sack uh, negative yardage, he had 700 yard rushing games this year, which is just, I mean, Malik Willis had five. So, I mean, it's just crazy how they used his legs uh, this year as, as a big part of the offense. Um, but you know, it, it, the reasons teams liked Sam Howell coming into the year, those reasons are still there. His arm talent, his poise, um, you know, being a guy that can move around, he's not a stationary threat. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to be excited to see him go to mobile and, and compete. I mean, there's, there's a good chance that the, the first seven quarterbacks drafted six of them are going to be senior bowl guys. Uh, really the only one that won't be is just Matt Corral. So, uh, you know, it, it's a great opportunity for him and no surprise that he declared. Yeah, I mean, the, the toughness, as you mentioned, with his poise in the pocket, uh, his accuracy, I thought was really consistent on film. I'm excited to dig deeper into this year's tape here, Dane, but uh, a guy that really stood out to me t- doing him over the summer, Ben, I actually got to get your thoughts on Sam Howell and just how he factors into this group. I mean, we talked about the, the QB boggle of this class and how everybody kind of sees them differently. How do you compare Howell to the rest of this group? Well, obviously, like Dane said, didn't have the season he expected, uh, you know, along with some of the other uh, expected good seasons like Spencer Rattler, but uh, Sam Howell's put up a lot of good film for UNC. He's competitive. He's tough. He's a leader and in a murky quarterback class. He's kind of the forgotten quarterback right now. So don't be surprised if he kind of rubber bands back into favor of NFL scouts and kind of the draft community and uh, kind of leapfrogging some of the 2021 darlings. Not saying he's going to, you know, maybe go ahead of the Kenny Pickett's, but maybe be grouped right in there with Carson Strong and Desmond Ritter and Matt Corral and that kind of next wave of quarterbacks that are in the first round discussion. Um, I think the one thing to really consider with him, much more athletic than he may look. He's short. He's thick. He doesn't look like the Kyler Murray, Murray Russell Wilson's of the world. But he is tough. He can move. He can boogie. He can create in and out of structure. Um, and 
kind of is a spitting clone to like a Baker Mayfield height, weight, speed, which the Cleveland Browns had no problem taking first overall. So I think he has much better kind of tools than Baker. Maybe Baker has a little bit more of a live arm kind of Oklahoma, but uh, Howell's ability to create out of structure in the QB run game and the RPO game was pretty impressive out there in North Carolina. All right, we'll stay in the backfield here uh, with a handful of running backs that have declared. And that, that is usually the case, right? We're going to see a lot of juniors, redshirt sophomores declare. And rather than go name by name and say, let's give like breakdowns of all these guys. We're, we've got plenty of time to get through all these names in an in-depth sense. But I'm interested, Ben, I'll come back to you first here. This handful of backs that I selected, you know, that's Oregon State's B.J. Baylor, who was an all-Pac-12 player uh, the last two years, I believe. BYU's Tyler Algier, we've talked about him a little bit here on the podcast. I know we've talked about Zonovan Knight from NC State, and then LSU's Tyrion Davis-Price. From that group, from that foursome there, who stands out most to you based off your film study? I think Zonovan Knight at NC State. This kid's got good size and is a zone-running savant whether inside zone, outside zone, has really good vision and can string cuts together, has very explosive cuts, explosive jump cuts, can get downhill and kind of get the tough yards, has a lot of DeMarco Murray type of qualities at Oklahoma and that type of leggy back, but really physical with good vision, kind of a one cut guy, um, but he can really hit the hole hard and kind of break through that first, second line of the defense and be a home run type of player. So he's a guy that's a very pro style running back, in my opinion, and should be ready to go on Sundays. He's a ferocious runner. I mean, that was one thing that stood to me was just how angry uh, he finishes runs. He was a lot of fun to watch. Ricky Person, the other uh, NC State back, he also declared uh, for this draft. Uh, and Fran, sometimes I wish he had a little bit more wiggle and shit. Yeah, right. Yep. But sometimes it was just a no nonsense and said, you know what? I'm I'm cutting out my escape alleys here and I'm just going right through right. you. And that kind of endears me too to finish runs like that. There's a lot of backs like that uh, with that profile uh, in this class. Dane, of that group, who stands out most to you? It's Tyler Algier. Um, I like him a lot more than I thought. Um, uh, after I got done with his tape and I wrote up his, his report, um, he might end up as a top five back for me in this class. Uh, I think he's that good. And, you know, he reminds me a lot of, of James Connor, who's coming out of when he's coming out of pit, okay, not the most, like not the most explosive guy, but you know, a big boned frame, he runs with an instinctive feel. He's got quick feet for a bigger back. Um, I think he's got upside in the passing game. Uh, and you know, this is a guy who was a walk on, uh, you know, he did not have many looks come out of high school and they even played him at linebacker, uh, his second year in the program, uh, you know, just to get him on the field. He played more linebacker than running back in 2019. Uh, and then this past year, uh, all he does is, uh, you know, leads the FBS and rushing touchdowns. Uh, he averaged 6.4 yards per carry over his career. Uh, he's just, he's a very decisive ball carry. And I think he does a lot of the, the ancillary traits. Uh, he has a lot of the ancillary traits that you need at the, at the position, you know, just quickly reading his blocks, uh, pressing the hole, making timely cuts, uh, being patient, but also being decisive, uh, you know, not running up the, the back of your blockers. He's just, he's missing that explosive element, but he's also, uh, you know, really, really competitive. I mean, just throw on that Arizona state tape and watch him, uh, chase down, uh, the linebacker and force the fumble. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just one of the, that's one of the plays of the year. Uh, and, and I think that shows what type of competitor that he is. So, uh, I, I like Tyler Algier a lot. And in this class, he might end up as a top five running back for me. Um, you know, I know James Conner isn't the most exciting uh, player at the NFL level, but I, I think Algier can be the kind of the best version of that. 
Uh, let's go to the receiving core where a couple of names have, have entered their names into the ring here. Uh, Jahan Dotson is the big one from Penn state. And, and we've talked about this receiving class and how, you know, maybe it's not the same as last year's where you had Jamar chase and Jalen Waddle go top 10 uh, Devonte Smith in the top 10, but number of players that a lot of people are going to be really intrigued with. And it feels like Dane, uh, that Dotson is going to be right in the mix of that group. And uh, depending on what you like at the position, he might be one of the top three or four receivers in this class. Yeah, I mean, you just, uh, the way you framed it was perfect because it, it's based on what you prioritize at the position. What do you need on your football team? Uh, you know, if it's more size and you're looking Drake London, Traylon Burks, um, I, to me, Garrett Wilson from Ohio State can do it all. He doesn't have the size, but he can do basically everything you want. He's, to me, he's the clear number one receiver. Um, but then, you know, I had, in my last top 50, I had six receivers in my top 25, and Jahan Dotson was one of them. Uh, with Dotson, the size doesn't impress you, but he might have the best hands of this group. He actually has bigger hands than what he, he has, like 10 inch hands, uh, which is, you know, not comparable to kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the frame that he has, uh, but he has big hands, reliable hands. He's got outstanding speed before and after the catch, not going to break a lot of tackles, but uh, he has suddenness in his releases, in his routes, um, in and out of his breaks. Uh, the double moves are just deadly for DBs. So uh, Jahan Dotson, not the biggest guy, but he is a playmaker. You know, what he reminds me a lot of is Deontay Johnson, um, except he's got Ooh. better ball skills. Uh, you know, just that elusiveness uh, before and after the catch, not the biggest guy, but uh, you know, he's, he, he can make plays. So I think Jahan, Jahan Dotson is a first round pick all day. And if you miss out on Burks and Drake London and Olave and Jameson Williams and Garrett Wilson, you're feeling okay. Cause Jahan Dotson is still an option for you. So I, I expect the Dotson to be one of those six rece first receivers drafted. Ben, it feels like he's a guy that, you know, and Dane obviously just did a great job of breaking him down, but uh, a guy that is kind of sliding under the radar, just, just a touch, not, not a ton of people uh, talking about Jahan Dotson, but I know he's a guy that, that you've studied as well. I can just see it's going to be one of these elite receivers going the back end of round one to the Bucks, the Chiefs, the Packers, a team that's kind of already loaded up because he's going to be too good to pass up on there, you know, in the late thirties of round one, but he could also be one of these receivers that's just, a victim of the positional depth. You know, it's a deep receiver class, in my opinion, not deep, you know, top 10 of the first round, but that next wave of 20 to 50 is all over the place. So whether you look at the Allen Robinsons, Mike Thomas's, you know, Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins, why these guys fall to day two for all different reasons. It's kind of a perfect storm for Jahan Dotson to be one of those same type of guys day two pick that come right on and is a superstar in this league. So like Dane had said, a lot of different receivers, different shapes, sizes, abilities, alignments, scheme fits, different strokes for different folks. Jahan Dotson, maybe wide receiver one on some boards, wide receiver 10 on other boards. Now where those teams end up picking can obviously decide if he's a first rounder or maybe a back end of round two. Let's go to the offensive line. There's just two more players I want to hit on before we get into our game balls, guys. Charles Cross from Mississippi State, E.K. McQuanu from NC State. Both guys making it official over the weekend. Both players uh, playing left tackle, but with conflicting styles, right? Cross, uh, and correct me if you guys uh, disagree, um, Cross wore the athletic kind of dancing bear type. E.K. McQuanu is just going to mash your face in every single chance that he gets uh, playing at left tackle. But uh, I want to ask both of you, who has the better shot at getting drafted first? Because it feels like in most mock drafts, it's a quantum over cross, but 
I think if you look at it just from a pure, hey, I'm not even going to watch the film just to look at the skill set. If you say they're equal talents and cross more of the pass protector and a clown and more of the run blocker, that would be cross that would go early. So I'm interested to kind of get your guys' thoughts. Who do you think has the better shot at getting drafted first? I think we both agree, or all three of us agree, that these are two top 10, top 15 talents in this draft. Well, I'll jump in here first real fast because I think it's going to be Iki Aquanu because not only is he a mauler and an absolute you know, finishing type of offensive lineman, he is really efficient in space too. Whether it's the zone game and getting off the ball, the screen game, some fun throwback stuff where he's blocking 20, 30 yards down the field, defensive backs. I think he's really got the full package of, of being able to kind of be athletic and a brute strong mauler as well. I still might slide him into guard at the next level. So I think his positional fit may not be solidified yet. I think he's a better prospect than Charles Cross, who certainly has the athleticism, the quick footedness, excellent pass protector, but a variety of kind of questions with his body type and the scheme that he played in under Mike Leach at Mississippi State. I think leave a little bit more questions, but I had no problem writing down some project projection comps like Jordan Gross, David Bakhtiari, and Lane Johnson, just to think of how highly I think Charles Cross can kind of succeed in this league. How about you, Dane? What do you think? I mean, throw Evan Neal in there and like the top three tackles. I, I honestly go back and forth about how to rank these guys. Uh, really, it might be whoever I watch last get, goes first because <laughs> I, I, I get done with Charles Cross. I'm like, oh, man, this guy, watch the Alabama tape and he's doing this. His hand exchange is so impressive for a redshirt sophomore. Uh, his shuffle quickness is there. Uh, it, I mean, there's still some things that he doesn't know, but he's going to get there. And so I, I'm really, really impressed with Charles Cross. I would uh, like Ben, I would lean Iquanu just because, uh, you know, some of the things that he does is just makes you sit up in your seat and go, wow. Uh, he executes the outside zone with just such rare movement skills and his power at the point of attack is explosive. So, uh, I mean, there's just so much you could do with him. I, to me, in my opinion, I think he proved himself as a left tackle this year. I thought, you know, he played outstanding. Um, I, he, there, there's, there's some, some Makai backed in there with what he's doing. Um, I, I think that there's a good chance he could be OT one on boards around the league. I think he will be the first tackle on uh, boards around the league, but I think Charles cross could be too. So I, I don't think this is a consensus scenario where Evan Neal, Charles cross, the key of Kwanu, any one of those three will be the consensus top tackle. I think teams will be split, uh, based off of just some of the preferences and what they want in the position and how they view these guys. Love it. Well, we've talked about some underclassmen who have made themselves eligible. Uh, let's get into our game balls here. And I'm going to start things off with the low hanging fruit. And that's an underclassman who's not eligible for this class guys. But uh, I think when you talk about it, who are the most memorable, what will be the most memorable bowl game performance from the 2021 season? Uh, number one, I mean, the Rose Bowl was just a ridiculous game to watch on new year's day evening. Uh, Ohio state and Utah was just so much fun. But what Jackson Smith and, uh, and Jigba did, uh, the Ohio State wide receiver, uh, what he did this past week for the Buckeyes, 15 catches, 347 yards, three touchdowns. That over-the-shoulder touchdown he made in the final couple of minutes was a thing of beauty. 347 yards receiving was the most in a bowl game in FBS history. 15 catches, a Rose Bowl record, three touchdowns receiving, a, a, a Rose Bowl record. I mean, just record after record after record shattered by what Smith and Jigba did uh, in this game. Dane, you'd been breaking them down uh, often here down the stretch. I mean, you, he's been one of the, maybe the, the most productive receiver of that trio. You've got Olave and Garrett Wilson entering this class. 
uh, Smith and Jigba has been as productive or more in most games here uh, in the last month and a half. But what he did against Utah was just uh, an absolute thing of beauty, making plays at all three levels. You knew the ball was going his way. They couldn't do anything to stop him. Uh, just so much fun to watch him work. Uh, yeah, and remember, he is the reason Jamison Williams transferred. Yeah, uh, because la- you know last year Jamison Williams started on the outside. Garrett Wilson was in the slot. Going into this year, they wanted to move Garrett Wilson back outside and to get Smith and Jigba in the slot. And that's what caused Jamison Williams to say, look around and say, okay, I'm kind of with Chris Olave coming back. I'm the odd man out. And that forced him to transfer to Alabama. You know, he's been arguably the most explosive player in the SEC this year, maybe the entire country. So, uh, I mean, that, that alone says what the coaching staff thought of Smith and Jigba and he's been solid all year, but this game really gave him a chance to shine. Um, and also I think just got to give a hat tip to, to CJ Stroud as well for making those wow. throws. Some of the, some of these throws, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to talk about him in my one play takeaway, but CJ Stroud deserves mention as well for making some of those throws, just really, really phenomenal performance by that offense. And for all you sickos out there looking to stack your 2023 boards, Throw Smith and Jabo as your top five receiver, along with Marvin Mims, Jordan Addison, the Blitnikoff winner, Crazy. Josh Downs, the speedy kid, North Carolina, Keisha Lucy. Yep. Yeah, there are some intriguing true sophomores out there. So I know you guys always like looking ahead and down the road. So, well, 2024. Put Marvin Harrison. <laughs> Marvin Harrison uh, Jr. Uh, in there. Yeah. yeah. Three touchdowns as well in that game. It was another name yeah. uh, to keep an eye out for, for sure, from Ohio State. Uh, ben, I'll come to you here. Uh, who gets your game ball this week? Well, real quick, you know, I think there's a couple low hanging fruits around college football, uh, particularly in the, uh, the playoff games. And Georgia, obviously, Stetson Bennett doesn't get a whole lot of love. You know, he's a bit, a bit more of a trailer than a truck as far as describing his quarterback play. Um, but he looked great in my opinion. I thought he did an outstanding job managing the game, making good decisions over 300 yards, passing three touchdowns, no turnovers, the plays out of structure as well. The three rushes for 32 yards were huge pickups. I just think his ability to manage the game shows so much poise against a really good Michigan defensive front with Aiden Hutchinson and Ojabo and some really tough linebackers. And really never blinking. You know, he doesn't, you know, for all intents and purposes, he doesn't look the part. He's 5'11, he's 190. He's not what you expect out of an SEC powerhouse football team quarterback. And his journey has been well documented, you know, because of that the walk on, the transferring, the coming back, competing for his spot, then bringing in JT Daniels, X, Y, and Z. Got to give credit where credit's due. He played a great game against Michigan. Yeah, he, he certainly uh, showed up, especially fighting through adversity because it wasn't always pretty uh, in that first half, but coming through uh, against a good defense in Michigan. Dane, uh, who gets your game ball here? Yeah, not to be repetitive, but I'm going to piggyback off of what, what Ben said, and I'm giving my game ball to the, the Georgia offensive game plan. Um, I, I'm going to cheat a little bit here because they, they knew Aiden Hutchinson was the best player on Michigan's defense, and they basically gave him the Bosa treatment. Uh, a ton of quick game in, in, in their offensive attack, screen slants. The ball was up and gone constantly to negate that uh, Michigan pass rush. And when they did drop back, Hutchinson saw constant chips from backs, tight ends. Uh, the Georgia uh, offense game planned against number 97 and forced the other 10 Michigan defenders to beat them. And we saw how that worked out. So, you know, there's the clip of uh, Jamari Stellier, uh, the left tackle for Georgia, who had a good game. 
uh, putting Hutchinson on the ground after he lost his balance. That's been circ- circulating around and, uh, you know, how Hutchinson had a terrible game. It, it, that was one negative play. Hutchinson played well, but there were, you know, there were just very few negative plays for Hutchinson. Uh, he played a good game, but just, it wasn't a dominant one because of the way Georgia focused on him. Uh, you know, I remember people telling me uh, a couple years ago, Chase Young was overrated after Clemson did the same thing to him in the college football playoff uh, semifinals. So uh, if a player is commanding that type of attention, they're doing their job and it's up to the other players to pick up the slack. And for Michigan, they couldn't do it. David Ajabo was a non-factor. He barely played in that game. He played, I think 24 snaps uh, because of the personnel situations, which was exactly by design uh, with what Georgia did. So bottom line, credit to Georgia's game plan, the execution uh, and and boo to the lazy takes. Uh, You know, they, they saw zero sacks for Hutchinson without understanding the context uh, of what the tape said, Hutchinson did not have a bad game. He played a good game. Just your Georgia's offensive game plan was better. Well, let's get to our one play takeaways guys. And Dane, you kind of teased yours earlier. So I'll come to you. What do you, what do you have to say here about Ohio state quarterback, CJ Stroud? Yeah, like I, I tweeted the, the, the end zone view of this. So please go check it out. Cause I'm not going to accurately describe it or, you know, give it the love that it deserves with my words. Uh, Smith and Jigba, he's lined up in the backfield. He wraps the under coverage with an angle route uh, right over the top of Devin Lloyd at linebacker Stroud. He starts his eyes to the left, then to his right, really pushes the safety towards the numbers. Stroud then throws a perfect ball in the middle of the field that Smith and Jigba can attack and create the anticipation to make that throw, the placement, the timing, it's simply outstanding. Uh, plus the fact that he's off balance because the pass rush is starting to get into his face. So the arm talent is simply phenomenal, but it takes more than a good arm to make that type of throw. I, I know Utah was shorthanded in the Rose Bowl, but that doesn't mean we can't be impressed by you know the things that Stroud and his receivers did. That That throw specifically just kind of blew me away. And to me, looking at Stroud over the over the last few games and comparing him to what he looked like in the first half of the year, we saw the flashes early, but I think the consistency has been has been there in a big way down the stretch. Uh, the ball placement has been really, really good. Uh, that play uh, off platform, as you mentioned, kind of falling away due to the pressure. Uh, it was a, a twitchy throw, and the ball placement was outstanding. I, I I went back and watched that clip as you posted it. Uh, really, really big time stuff there from the sophomore quarterback or from the freshman quarterback. Uh, ben, how about you? What's your one play takeaway? Well, I'm going to stay in the Georgia game and James Cook running back slash receiver. We've talked about a number of times, kind of the smaller package, younger brother of Dalvin Cook, a bit more of the dual threat type of do everything back uh, for Georgia. And he had a bunch of big plays. So I love the stutter go where he's lined up on the outside. One of those four by one formations that we're seeing all over the place, but the route running, the start, stop, the tracking, the over the shoulder, just beautiful out there lined up outside of the numbers looked like a receiver doing it. And then in the run game, man, his slashing ability, the vision, the jump, the jump cuts, the ability to get North South with explosive speed instantly. I mean, Brad Hawkins was a ankle tackle away from, you know, a 51 yard touchdown. Uh, he nearly, you know, broke through. So he's a guy that's just a big play threat. Every time he's kind of targeted or gets the ball in his hands, I really think he can be a Tony Pollard or Naheem Hines for somebody. But there's also a little bit of a buyer beware. Could he be a Curtis Samuel type who obviously took up a similar type of role for Ohio State, never materialized in the pros as that same type of weapon. So um, figuring out who they are off the field and mentally is really important. And the offense they go to, 
equally important in the scheme usage. So James Cook, a lot of ability, going to need some vision, some creativity, and how to use them. Yeah, the the two names you just mentioned, that are the exact two names that I wrote down, Pollard uh, and Naheem Hines, that type of role where you know, line them up in the backfield, motion them out, all the different things they could do. And and I believe both were fourth round picks. I, I, and that's exactly the the range where I think, you know, Cook belongs. Uh, you know, I don't, maybe he sneaks in the top 100, but, you know, I think he's more of a fourth round type of guy who uh, in, you know, might not be for every offense, but for an offense that's looking for that type of role player, he can make an, a, a big impact. I like it. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Notre Dame, Oklahoma state, a really fun game as well. Uh, Notre Dame tight end, Michael Mayer had two touchdowns. Both of them really athletic where you see kind of see his movement skills at the top of the route. Uh, he made the diving catch in the slant route in the red zone for the second touchdown. So just a guy that could be that movable piece at the tight end spot and not give up much as a blocker. And that's what you're looking for, right? To be that three down tight end. I think he's got that ability to be a combo player at the next level. And guys, I think it's interesting. You know, we, we've talked about Smith and Jigba. We've talked about CJ Stroud and Michael Mayer and, you know, all these guys, a bunch of these guys that aren't eligible for this draft, right? And people are so bent out of shape about players not playing in bowl games and guys opting out. Bowl games are a great opportunity to be able to put your young talent on display. And that's why that was one of the first things I loved about when the NCAA changed the, uh, the red shirt rule for bowl games. Like, Hey, you know, we're going to limit it to four games for players that you can, those guys can play in up to four games. And a big part of that was with bowl games. Hey, you can get a look at next year's team right now. And it's been great to be able to see some of those young stars that we're going to be talking about a year from now really get to be put on display. Michael Mayer, Smith and Jigba, CJ Stroud, you go right down the list. Um, yeah, it's a good opportunity. If one guy opts out, oh, other guys step in and, and get to put on uh, huge displays here, Dan. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, we, whether it's, you know, the Ohio State uh, game, seeing those young receivers step up with Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave uh, opting out, or, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the Notre Dame game, uh, you know, with a relatively young team. You know, it's it's a big opportunity. And I think we saw several uh, players step up and do that. All right, let's get to our, uh, our film room recaps, guys, to, to wrap this segment up. A guy that we studied on film over the last week that has caught our eye, and we haven't really talked about, uh, the Alabama Cincinnati game and look, Alabama went through, they rolled and they're obviously going to have the, uh, the big championship rematch here against Georgia. But one guy that I've studied on film recently is Alabama running back, Brian Robinson. And I found myself really liking what Robinson brings to the table. He's a senior. He, he actually went back for that extra year. So he's a super senior, um, was a backup behind Najee Harris for, uh, to start his career. But this is a guy that is built like that traditional Alabama running back. He's six foot one, two twenty-five, And when you watch him on film, Film. He is every bit of that. Uh, this is a guy that I love his competitive nature, his toughness between the tackles. Uh, he plays to his size, but he's also got a burst in the hole. He's got more giddy up than you would expect for a 220 pound back. He is like a freight train off the rails. Uh, when he gets up to the, the open field, he's a power runner inside. Uh, I thought he's a really good pass protector, which again, you usually see for most Alabama backs as well. He takes good care of the football. I, th- I thought his vision and his field were solid. I didn't think they were great, but I thought they were solid. And he, like I said, he's got a little bit more juice than you would expect. So to me, like I saw a guy that he could, I could see a team viewing him as a potential uh, foundation type player on a week to week basis. I don't know if you're going to say, Oh, Hey, we're going to give him uh, you know, 300 carries and he's going to be our guy over the course of the year. But I, I saw Brian Robinson as a guy that could be a lead back for an NFL offense, especially with the, the, the amount of tread that he's got left on his tires. Um, this, this is a guy that I think has a bright NFL future. So Brian Robinson, a really fun study. Uh, my guess is that he will be heading uh, to the senior bowl. Cause uh, he's a, he's a player that um, is from 
from the Alabama area. I believe, I believe he's from T- Tuscaloosa, actually. Tuscaloosa. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I, my guess is, is that if he gets that invite, that he will be uh, staying home and going to the senior ball. Uh, Dane, uh, who's a guy that you've studied lately? Yeah. Uh, first with Robinson, I, I agree hundred percent. I, I, there's some Latavius Murray there um, yeah. with the way he runs. I mean, I, and I think the same type of role where, uh, you know, he might not be, yeah, like you said, a 300 uh, carry guy, but he can carve out a role in an NFL backfield. No question. Um, so I, I finished my report on Brandon Smith, the Penn state linebacker uh, junior came out early and, you know, I, I finished this report but I didn't because I'm still conflicted mm. with him. Um, you know, he's, he's a former five-star guy. Everybody wanted him out of high school, uh, coming out of a small town in, in Virginia, goes to Penn state, uh, two year starter. I, I think it's fair to say he got better, uh, with every game You know, the more experience he saw, the better he got, but there's still, he just still left me wanting more. I mean, this is a guy that's, <clears throat> he's almost defensive end size. He's huge. He's six, three, two fifty. Um, but he doesn't play like the alpha that you expect. He doesn't play as powerful, um, but he is a freak. He's so physically impressive with the way he looks. He's explosive. He's got range. Uh, but, you know, I think the mental side of the position is still a work, in pro- a work in progress for him. And so a very toolsy athlete, clear NFL starting potential because of the just the athletic tools for his size. But the tape shows an unrefined player who just has to get better with his processing, has to get better with his finishing skills. Uh, and so I, I finished my report on him, like I, I, but I'm not quite there in terms of my projection with where he's going to end up. So he, he's a really tough player to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some similarities. A lot of the discussions we've had with guys like uh, Jeremiah Wusukoromoa, you know, you go down that list of guys that were like those two-way players that, you know, how how much experience does he have being a true take-on guy in the box? Because uh, at 6'3", 240, he's going to be asked to, to play that role. Uh, and it's a little bit of a projection at this point. He can't do it, yeah, and he can't yeah. do it right. He's, yeah. it, it, the fundamentals as a tackler and a take-on player, they're below average. They're poor yeah. right now. And so I, can he get better? Sure, but... I, I don't know. I, it's, I, I really struggle with him. It's easy to see the potential, but you know, I, and I do think he's going to be a day two pick. I, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't, he's not going to fall too far because the, he's just a freak, but uh, just trying to figure out exactly. Okay. And, and how long it's going to take for him to get on the field. You know, is he going to have to redshirt as a fresh or as a, as a rookie? I, it, it, he's a tough guy to figure out that. Uh, so the combine, the interview process, it'll be very important for him. And, and if Penn State history and recent uh, combines is, is any proof, uh, whenever we think he's going to test at the combine, we expect it to be a little bit better. He's, he's <laughs> those guys. Uh, there's something in the water out there in Happy Valley. Uh, ben, take us home. Uh, who wrap us up with your uh, film recap? Well, we're going to talk about Alabama defensive tackle Fedarian Mathis. And it's this same time of the year of Alabama defensive tackles that we start caring about them now because these are the unsung guys on that Alabama defense. The edge rushers get the sacks, the linebackers make the TFL and the rangy explosive plays. And these D tackles just have to do the hard work, play, run the pass. They don't get to shoot gaps and get upfield, do a lot of the dirty work until the season's over. And then all of a sudden the draft community says, well, Ashawn Robinson's a good player, and Dalvin Tomlinson can play. And where do we draft Ron Reed? These guys aren't always the sexiest on tape and watching them for Alabama, but Fedarian Mathis is a really good football player, and this kid's going to be drafted high. He's 6'4", 315, good size, 
prototypical Alabama D tackle or to run the pass player. He's heavy handed, stout base, two gaps, stack and shed, can play the peekaboo game, but he has some freaky lengths to him. His wingspans over 84 inches, over 34 inch arms. He has serious length to him. And he's much more in the Reed Robinson Tomlinson mold than the Christian Barmore, Jonathan Allen. This is a brute strong guy can play on the line of scrimmage, hold up double teams. And then when he converts to pass, he is a bull in a China shop. He just ragdolls offensive linemen off of him, whether it's swim moves, hump moves, just walking them back to the quarterback. He cannot be stopped. He's a good kid off the field, a captain, a leader. Go watch his interview at the SEC media day in the summer. Really good kid. And in a class that Jordan Davis seems to be the headliner as a nose tackle, Fedarian Mathis should not be far behind. And I will even go out to say some teams may prefer Fedarian Mathis to Jordan Davis. Why? A little bit more ability in the pass game, a little bit more fleet of foot and some range. And I think Fedarian Mathis is going to take on a Jaron Reed role in that I think his upside as a pass rusher has only just begun folks. And Jaron Reed was a double digit sack guy with the Seahawks. Nobody knew he had that ability until he was given some green lights and was able to shoot some gaps and play in some one gap schemes. And all of a sudden he had a double digit sack defensive tackle. So in a class that after Jordan Davis, it's who Perry and Winfrey, Keanu Benton, Travis Jones should be Fedarian Mathis. I think he's a top 50 player all day long. I forget about Haskell Garrett uh, in that group as well. I don't think it would surprise either of us, either of the three of us, if Fedarian Mathis ends up being a, a top 100 pick, you know, a, a third round pick, and then four years from now signs a contract for you know 50 million guaranteed. Right. And Fran, it's funny you brought up Haskell because there's a lot of guys that have some hybrid ability, the up yep. and down the line guys, whether it's Zachary Carter's or Logan Sam Hall, Williams, yeah, Isaiah right. Thomas. All those guys seem to have this positional versatility. I think Fedarian's a through and through kind of one tech, maybe can kick out in some three techs. I think he's that nose tackle type. Yeah. I put, you know, Haskell Garrett in more of that combo player that I think can play DND tackle. Well, I think uh, Fedarian's more of a nose shade, maybe kick out the three tech kind of the other way. Oh, so, yeah. but there's a lot of interesting guys in the defensive tackle group, all different shapes, sizes, abilities. It's going to be all over different boards and mock drafts. So Fedarian Mathis, don't forget about big 48 there for Alabama. And, and I don't think this is a great defensive tackle class and it's not no. going to get, it's not going to get a lot of help from the underclassmen. I don't, we might not have a single defensive tackle uh, underclassmen, uh, at least guys that are going to be, you know, top four around guys uh, enter this draft. So, uh, you know, behind, uh, except for DeMarvin Leal, I guess if we go on, if we count him with the defensive right. tackles, um, but behind him, yeah, yeah, Jordan Davis and Mathis and Devontae Wyatt. I mean, it's just, it's not the, you know, I, Travis Jones from, from UConn put him in there too, but it is not the deepest class. And so I, I agree. Mathis could uh, very easily be a top three defensive tackle in this group. And that's a year after, I mean, last year's group wasn't very strong inside either. Right? That, that, that one, I mean, remember the senior bowl, they struggled to, to field a, a group of defensive tackles. They were putting defensive ends uh, that were 260 pounds inside during practice, Ben. And real quick, Fran, remember the last Alabama-Georgia National Championship game? Who showed up big rushing the passer? Big Deron Payne. All of a sudden showed he can contribute in both ways. That was the lasting impression. Top 10 pick, never looked back, and the Washington football team is pretty happy with that. Always leave out that little bit of ability. Yep. He has a big performance on the big stage. That means something. And that buzz and kind of the aesthetic buzz around prospects, that means something. So, Fedarian Mathis, one game left. Go make it count. 
Well, we talked about a bunch of Alabama players uh, in that last part of the discussion. Obviously, we got, we got, we still have to see another game of Alabama, but let's talk about some players that we haven't had a chance to see in bowl season. Whether, whatever whatever reason, we haven't had a chance to see them. We're going to debate that here with our on-the-clock segment with Chris McPherson. Just real quick, before we welcome C-Mac in, he doesn't hear this right now, uh, the overall record. We haven't played in a couple of weeks just because of scheduling, guys. But, Dane, you've got a one-point lead on Ben and I. It's five to four to four in our, uh, in our weekly debate segment here. So we'll see. Uh, who's able to get the W here as we welcome in Chris McPherson. It's time for On the Clock. On the Clock. All right, well, excited for the return of our On the Clock segment as we welcome in Chris McPherson. C-Mac, uh, take us home here in this segment. We're, we're getting closer and closer to the finish line. Only a couple more weeks, I think, uh, that we're going to do this. Uh, I'll let you uh, kick it off for us. I was about to say, do we have to break the tie or something? Are we are we all even? I don't want to tell you what the score is. I'm not letting you know. We, we, we already talked about it a minute ago, but uh, we'll just say that it's close. We'll say that it's close. All right, so coming back this week, on the clock, who was a player, as we're getting to the end of bowl season, who was a player you wish you got to see one more game out of? A player who did not participate in the bowl games, whether it was an opt-out, COVID, injury, team didn't make it, whatever the reason was, you wish you got to see one more game out of X player. Dane, I feel like you always get to kick things off when we have these hotly contested debates here, so you get the honors this week. All right, so I'm not going to criticize any player for opting out of a bowl game. You know, they've got that opportunity at life-altering money. Yep. Don't want to jeopardize that. I get it. Totally understandable. Uh, however, I will say I am. I was surprised at some of the opt-outs, including Nicholas Petit-Ferrer, Ohio State's left tackle. Uh, he has a chance to be a top 50 pick in this draft. So I understand why he opted out, but he played so poorly in that last game, which was the, the Michigan game, when Aiden Hutchinson, David Ajabo, they just teed off on him. Uh, he played so poorly that, uh, you know, in that game, I would think that he wanted to, you know, would go out in the Rose Bowl, end his career on a positive note. You know, from a scouting perspective, the body of work is what matters. But it's tough to get that Michigan performance off off my mind when when you hear his name. It, it was that it was that bad, and so he played pretty solid all year, not great. Uh, but he had two below average games, Penn State and Michigan. He got torched in both those games. So I think scouts, you know, they're they were eager to see him get back on track. Uh, against a tough Utah defense. And unfortunately, we just didn't get that chance. Now, he's a junior graduate, so he is senior bowl eligible. Maybe that factored in, into his decision. I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe he's thinking, okay, I can go to Mobile, get things back on track there. But I do wish we could have seen him one last time to help his evaluation because I, I, I would not be surprised at all if he took himself out of the first round based on that Michigan game alone. Wow. So – What's his body of work for his career? How long has he been a starter? How many games does he have under his belt? You know, obviously it's the the lasting impression, the recency bias of that Michigan game will obviously alter the perception, but are there other games that scouts can look back on to say, okay, this is him against NFL level competition and he shined here. Well, he's a former five-star guy. So he came in with a lot of hype, uh, but he showed up at like 268. I mean, uh, just a light, light player. And so he had a red shirt and then he was a backup as red shirt freshman. Uh, and then as a, a 2020, he was a right tackle. This year, he moves to left tackle. Um, and like I said, it was he was solid for most of the year. Um, he did a nice job against uh, Karloftis again in the Purdue game. But I think they, they, they schemed more against him than anything else. 
Um, and, and, you know, we wish we could have seen him against Thibodeau in the Oregon game, but of course, uh, you know, he was, Thibodeau was injured and they didn't play in that game. So I, you know, I don't think there was a great body of work against premier pass rushers, except, uh, uh, Penn state and Michigan, two teams that have NFL pass rushers. And, you know, it just, it was not a great performance in those games. And so, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, against teams with NFL future NFL pass rushers, there was more bad than good from Petit Freire this year. Dan, last question on him before we go to Ben. Do you see Petit Freire as a future left tackle, or was he better at right tackle in 2020, and that should be his position moving forward? No, I mean, I think he has the tools to be a left tackle. It's just, he really, it's just a consistency factor. He has a, he has a tough time staying centered. Uh, you know, he just, he needs more reps and he needs to be more comfortable on an island. So um, I don't know that left tackle versus right tackle matters all that much because it really just comes down to consistency for him. All right. Dan's off the board there. Ben, who you got here in the number two slot? Well, real quick, I just want to echo Dane's sentiment about players' decisions, you know, opt in, opt out, do whatever you feel is best for you. I feel like as a society, we're just so trained and conditioned to care about other people's decision-making, whether it's sports or whether it's something bigger like gay marriage. We're so conditioned to care about decisions that don't affect us. So whether you want to opt in, opt out for whatever reasoning, go for it. It's the player's choice. It's a player's lives. Do what you feel is best for you. But turning the page forward onto a player that I wish I saw over the weekend in one of the more entertaining bowl games in recent memory. How about that Music City Bowl, guys, between Tennessee and Purdue? Mm. Fun game. But I just miss seeing George Karlaftis out there off the edge for the Purdue Boilermakers. And why is that C-Mac, first of all? Going up against an SEC offensive line would have been nice. That real kind of clinching performance to your college career. Remember, he's a true junior. He is not scooped up by a bowl game, an all-star game yet, and likely won't. I'm not sure if he's graduated or even eligible. So this could have been his last performance as a college player. Uh, didn't really have a great Ohio State game, was shut out as far as pressures and sacks. They got a nice win against Northwestern Indiana, but just kind of average. And right now, I think he's kind of falling, and guys are catching up with him like Jermaine Johnson and David Ojabu for that third edge rushing spot. That's no longer just Carl Aftis in there. And we're seeing a lot of mocks like having Ojabo in there in the top 10 and other guys kind of soaring up the rankings because they're in front of you and there's a little bit more buzz to build. So I wanted to see Carl Aftis with that signature performance against an SEC offensive line in a really fun bowl game. Maybe he would have impacted a little bit more and it wouldn't have gone into overtime, although it was a lot of fun to watch. But I was just watching that game really missing the real studs out there for Purdue, whether it's David Bell on the offensive side or Carl Laftis on the defensive side. I think he's the third best edge rusher. So I want to make sure it stays that way. So definitely missed him. Do you feel like, Ben, that Carl Laftis is someone who, assuming he'll go to the combine, is someone who's going to stand out there from a physical t testing standpoint? You know, I think so. I think he's going to be really well-rounded. Uh, I think he's going to look strong in the weightlifting. I think he's going to look adequately explosive. And I think he's going to have good enough movement patterns. There's a guy that's played a variety of sports growing up as uniquely as like water polo and stuff like that. I think he's going to look fine. I don't think he's going to be elite in anything. So I think each kind of drill to combine will be like, nice, nice, nice. And he'll be one of those guys that you take a step back from his full day and say, wow, that was a pretty good workout. So I think he checks a lot of boxes. 
just doesn't have that sexy redeeming quality that says, yes, we need him on our line. We got to have him. He's just dripping with explosiveness or speed. He's a brute strong player. And I think a Ryan Kerrigan kind of comparison is really kind of apropos here uh, for a lot of reasons. Be a nice career if he could have a Ryan Kerrigan type career. Absolutely. Uh, so Fran, uh, just to echo what Ben was saying before he uh, listed Carl Aptis, I, I just love how we expect the kids to be the adults in the room all the time here. So uh, Fran, we'll go to you here with your final player here in our who do we wish we got to see during the bowl season. Yeah, and I'm going to go with a player who actually opted to play uh, in the bowl game. His plan was to participate, and that's Ole Miss quarterback Matt Corral. Uh, and I think there's a, a good reason why he decided he wanted to participate in C-Mac. Obviously, uh, only a limited uh, sample size of him as a starter. He's only a two-year starter at, in the SEC. He's going to be a redshirt. He is a redshirt junior this year. Undersized quarterback. I think he's got plenty of tools. I love the way Matt Corral plays, and there's plenty of juice around him, C-Mac. Whenever you watch Ole Miss offense, uh, you know, you watch that team on TV this year, you could tell that he's just one of those guys that's got that kind of that factor around him that people are drawn to. His teammates are drawn to. He just provides a lot of juice. He plays with a lot of energy. And I think that that carried through to his decision to be able to play through injury throughout most of the year. He was bothered by an ankle injury most of the season, C-Mac. And a lot of people thought, oh, he's going to take a couple weeks off here and there. He didn't really miss any time. He, he stayed in there, played through it, even though he's one of the more athletic quarterbacks in the SEC and still ran for a boatload of yards, a bunch of touchdowns this year. He fought through that ankle injury and said, yeah, like I've fought too hard to be here with my teammates. Those guys are playing through injuries as well. I'm going to fight through this. Decided he's going to play in the bowl game and then re-injured uh, that foot. We haven't seen any official reports. Dane, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, up to this point on the severity uh, of that injury. Um, X-rays were negative. Yeah, all right. Well, that, so, so hopefully, or thankfully, uh, it looks yeah. like up here it's something serious. But um, but I think when you look at Matt Corral, the big thing, uh, why we're going to miss him most, C-Mac, I think when you look at the rest of the quarterbacks in this class, you go Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, Desmond Ritter, Sam Howell, uh, Carson Strong, Bailey Zappi, right? Those guys are heading to Mobile. Those guys are heading to the Senior Bowl. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dane, I don't believe Matt Corral uh, is eligible for the Senior Bowl and does not have that invite at this point. So the reason why this was a big opportunity for Matt Corral to play in this bowl game was this was that last opportunity to put that exclamation point on. And while Pickett, Ritter, the rest of that group, they've got that ability to go down to Mobile and do it. Corral was the only one who didn't have that opportunity. And now that was uh, taken away from him with this injury. So, um, you know, look, I think the, the overall body of work, not just last year, but this year, especially uh, as a junior, I think that that will, that will speak for itself. Uh, but unfortunate for, for Corral that he couldn't go out uh, and finish the career the way that he wanted to. Yeah. I think the big thing here is it's, you want to build that momentum, that buzz going into draft season as the college football season comes to a close. And we get into the all-star games and the combine uh, and, and the hype train starts to take off and you want to be able to accelerate, you know, someone like Aiden Hutchinson, who you know, had a phenomenal season and obviously Michigan didn't do well in the playoffs, but nonetheless, Aiden Hutchinson is in that conversation now for the number one overall pick, no matter what mock drafts you're looking at. So unfortunately these three guys weren't able to, but Fran, I'm going to go with you. I think Matt Corral, because there really isn't a star studded quarterback who in my estimation, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, is really at the top of the heap of the quarterback market at this point. We know that they're probably going to get pushed up between now and come the end of April. 
uh, would have given Matt Corral a good chance here. So, look, I think all three cases are great. You know, Carlathis certainly, obviously, again, it's you're kind of forgotten about because these other edge rushers are, you know, taking the stage and had huge performances this season, and they're having that freakish explosiveness, and they're, you know, they're, they're showing the wow factor. And then Petit Friere, you know, teams are going to need those blindside tackles. You're going to need guys on both edges there of the line of scrimmage. You know, obviously, everyone's going to be, you know, looking at that last game against Michigan and wondering, uh, you know, is that what we're going to get going in the pros? Because he basically played against two future first-round picks there. So, all three great choices here. But, uh, Fran, I'm going to give it to you, Matt Corral, just uh, because I think, you know, the quarterback, quarterback-wise, there really doesn't seem to be that number one guy. He could have put himself in the conversation with a strong ball performance. Every time you come on the show, C-Mac, we always walk away knowing how smart you are, but especially a day like today, especially a day like today. Good stuff. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the Draft Mailbag. All right, let's wrap up the show here with our Draft Mailbag, and we've got two questions, one Eagles-related, one not. We'll start with the Eagles question here. First comes with Philip P., five-star review on our Apple Podcast page. Philip, thanks so much for that review. Uh, Here's the question. How do you view the Eagles' need to take a wide receiver early in this draft, particularly with one of those three first-round picks? So, Philip, I think it's an interesting debate. Obviously, look, uh, the Eagles are looking to continue to get more production from some of the young receivers on the team, but I do think it's a a big factor into this equation is how they view the offense moving forward. We know that the Eagles have developed into one of the best run games and arguably the best run game in the NFL over the last couple of months as they march towards the playoffs. But if that's going to continue going into 2022 – then the value of that number three receiver, because essentially that's what you're talking about. If you've got Devontae Smith and Dallas Goddard, two players that you feel can be the focal points of a passing game, then any other receivers after that, they're going to be tertiary weapons for you, especially when you factor in that run game. And so, uh, you know, we've talked about that in the past. I know I talk about it almost on a weekly basis over on our game day shows, the kickoff show and the post game show is, you know, if you're talking about, is this going to be a Dallas Goddard game or a Devontae Smith game? It's rare that both guys have huge weeks because if you're going to run the ball 40 times, there are only so many passes to be able to go around. And so if you throw in another high pick at wide receiver on top of that, well, now the, the targets get even more muddied. So I will be interested to see. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that they won't go that way, but I do think it's an interesting debate and something we'll follow here over the next few months. Next one here comes from Ace Razzo, who left a five-star review on our Apple podcast page as well. Uh, this is a New York Jets question. He said, who are two players you think make the most sense for the Jets in the first round with the two picks in the top 10? I believe right now uh, the picks are number four and number seven. Obviously, we still have one more week of regular season play to really hash that out. I think the big thing is what, what do we know so far about the Jets general manager, Joe Douglas? He's been out, been there now for a couple of drafts. Uh, something he will always lean on is going to be that Baltimore Ravens axiom, right? That speed, toughness, and instincts. You lean into those three pillars. If you find players that fit not just all three, but maybe two of those three, uh, you're not going to go wrong. And so I, I think you want to try and check as many of those three boxes as possible with a lot of these guys. Early on, you're going to see them go for need, which makes sense. They're, when you get into round one, especially when you're picking to the top 10, uh, you want to try and find guys that can help make an impact on your roster. And so uh, I think when you look at some of these, some of the holes that this team could have going into the offseason, a couple of free agents on the offensive line, uh, Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, who the team traded for at the deadline, he's going to upcoming free agent, free agent right tackle as well. Morgan Moses, they signed him to a one-year deal over the summer. He is going to enter the free agent market. Now, uh, I think Mekhi Becton has not played for most of this year. Obviously, they've gotten some solid play from George Fant, but you know, could they look at a guy like Ike Aquanu uh, early on? I think that would make a lot of sense based off some of the things that we've seen them do. We know that Joe Douglas likes, you know, he has a lot of belief in building the team 
inside out. So that would be one player. I think that makes a lot of sense. And then you go to the offensive or the other side of the football on defense, look at corner. They've got a lot of really young spirited defensive backs. They've got some good play from those guys. I think that Robert Sala and, and that staff, they've done a good job of coaching those guys up. But if you drop in a player like a Derek Stingley, who's got all of the physical tools, you talk about speed, toughness, instinct, uh, Derek Stingley has that. You drop him in alongside those other corners. Now, all of a sudden, not all this pressure is placed on Bryce Hall to be the number one guy, right? And everybody else can kind of slide down the pecking order a little bit. So uh, to me, like an Ikem Aquanu, Derek Stingley Jr. Uh, duo there in the top 10, I think that would make a lot of sense. So Ace, really appreciate uh, the review. Thanks so much for the five-star rating. Again, if you've got a question, if you've got a mock draft or player rankings, position rankings, anything you want us to go through, make sure you're going over to our Apple podcast page. Leave it there in the comment box. We will hit on it here in an upcoming show. That said, uh, that'll do it for this edition of the Journey to the Draft podcast. We'll be back later this week. We're going to preview next week's national title game. We've got Ross Tucker, Eric Galco, Ben Fennel. We'll be back later this week on the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand.